You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The story of Jewish piracy in the West Indies really begins in about 1640. That's when Protestant exiles arrived in the Caribbean and found allies in the Jewish population of Jamaica. However, those Jamaican Jews were already well acquainted with pirates and piracy and with the other Jews that already practiced it. That tradition began in the Mediterranean, with the Jews from the Iberian diaspora, and with their alliance with the Dutch and the Ottoman pirates of the Barbary Coast. This is episode 74, A Brief History of the Berbers. The Berber people are traditionally defined as an indigenous group living in North Africa, and that's a fair definition. There is a linguistic and cultural heritage dating back to 10,000 BCE, maybe earlier. Their name, Berber people, or the Berbers, probably comes from ancient Sanskrit, and down through Egyptian, it might actually share a deep root with the word barbarian. In Sanskrit, it meant outlander, and it had negative connotations. Those Egyptians might actually have named the Berber people Berbers, outlanders, and then that would have been passed down through Greece and Rome. The Berbers have never really been a single people. The name Berber has always been placed on them by outsiders. They're really a collection of different cultures and different tribal groups. There are Libyans and Numidians and a host of others all throughout the centuries. But their shared culture, their religion and dress and everything that makes up a people, well, most of that is expressed through their common language. The very first records we have of a proto-Berber language comes from Egypt, but when you look at things like cave paintings and other archaeological evidence, as well as contemporary written records from the Egyptians, they suggest that there was an agricultural seaside civilization by 2000 BCE or so. The Berbers, the people that made up that civilization, dominated North Africa culturally and linguistically all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to the borders of Egypt. However, most of the history of the Berber people has been a history of invasion, of occupation, and of assimilation. Through the 4,000 years since they were in command of North Africa, 
Well, they've proven to be survivors, not just physically surviving, but keeping their language and their culture and their people alive. Even today, Berber is the primary language in some North African nations and the secondary language in others, and movements continue to preserve and separate Berber culture from the cultural domination of other societies. The first culture to invade and dominate the Berbers was the Phoenician people. The Phoenicians were a Levantine people from the eastern Mediterranean. They were one of those cultures that make up the Fertile Crescent, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were among the most talented seafarers of their day. Perhaps they were the most talented. Honestly, that's what defines the Phoenicians. Culturally, they weren't that different from the Israelites or any other Levantine civilization, except that they had... Well, they had a fantastic alphabet and writing system, and they understood the sea and sea travel. They traveled all over the Mediterranean. Notably, they traveled to and traded a lot with Greece. That's where they get their name. The Greeks named the Phoenicians after the purple dyes that they traded. They traded with Egypt as well, and with the Latin people on modern-day Italy, and with Iberian Celtic society. But... Doing all of that from the Levant was difficult, so they set up trading posts to facilitate trade all around the Mediterranean. Most notably was the city founded by a Phoenician woman named Elishat or Elisha. In ancient Phoenician, her name means either God of Fire or God of the Feminine. Probably it means both. Phoenician and Berber culture were, and still are in some ways, centered around fire and femininity. They seem to have a connected nature in the minds of the Berber people. The Romans named this fire goddess Queen Dido, and the city she founded was called Carthage. Dido was the grand niece of Jezebel, of biblical fame, and a queen of the great city of Tyre. It's from there that she took her fleet west to settle a new city to dominate Mediterranean trade. Now, there is a possible connection here. The Phoenicians were, in many ways, a feminine society, at least in the eyes of Rome and compared to Rome, who was a decidedly masculine society. Jezebel and Dido were the lineage of Phoenicia and of Carthage. The Carthaginians and the Phoenicians were masters of the sea. There may have been a connection in the minds of the Romans between the femininity of Carthage and the sea itself. That might explain some of the roots of why, in the European tradition, the sea is always female and ships are always given feminine pronouns. Carthage, according to Roman and biblical sources, was founded sometime around 1200 BCE and immediately became the primary power in the western Mediterranean. That would, if the city were in fact as old as that, make Carthage a contemporary of Troy and the Hittite Empire and the Minoan civilization on Crete that would predate Assyria and Persia and Athens. However, that's according to biblical sources and much later Roman chroniclers. Archaeological records suggest that the city was founded much later, around 800 BCE. That's right about the time that legend tells us of Romulus and Remus founding the city of Rome. Now, the Phoenicians and Carthage operated differently than the Romans or the Greeks or the Persians. 
they were a commercial people, and Carthage was a commercial city. They were distinct from the neighboring Berber people. They traded with the Libyans, who was the closest tribe to them, but the citizens of Carthage were an economic elite. They didn't seek expansionist aims in North Africa. Occasionally, they would set up other trading posts, but they didn't try to conquer the Libyan people. Instead, they set up other trading posts all around the Mediterranean, in Greece, in Sicily, in Iberia, and in mainland Italy. She was frequently in conflict with the Greek and Etruscan city-states, and when Persia finally began their climb to empire, those old Phoenician centers of power, places like Tyre, well, they fell. Phoenician cultural hegemony transferred from the Levant to North Africa to Carthage. And it's in that fall, in the fall of the Levantine civilizations to Persia, that we see the roots of Cilician piracy. Dispossessed Phoenician and Israeli seafarers turned to roving. But we're talking about Carthage here. In 509 BCE, Carthage signed a treaty with an insignificant backwater that called itself Roma. They did so to aid themselves in their fight against the Etruscan city-states on the Italian mainland, but that treaty, and their relationship with Rome, would eventually lead to the destruction of Carthage. And when I think about the greatest what-ifs of history, the one that always strikes me as having the greatest potential influence is, well, what if Carthage won the Punic Wars? That's a hard question to answer. So many things would be different throughout our entire history that the modern world might look entirely unrecognizable. And part of the reason that that question is so hard to answer is because when Rome finally defeated Carthage for the final time, well, they destroyed her. They destroyed her buildings and her fields and her historical records. Nearly everything that we know of Carthaginian culture comes from the records of Roman historians. Historians that despised Carthage deep in their bones. So it's hard to say what would be different. If Rome fell and Hannibal took command of the Roman Republic, if the Italian city-states swore allegiance to Carthage, our alphabet would be based on the Phoenician alphabet, not the Roman alphabet. Europe would not have seen the civilizing effect of Rome. Places like Gaul, Britannia, and Germania might not have come in conflict with the Mediterranean civilization until centuries later. Roman civilization was a masculine one. Warfare was central to the state, to the survival of the state, and the masculine virtues reigned in Roman society. And we see the echoes of that in our society today. But Carthage was a much more feminine society. Now, they weren't a matriarchy. They still had kings. They still had armies. They still fought wars. But the role of women and the feminine virtues were much stronger in Carthage than in Rome, at least according to the chauvinistic Roman historians who wrote about the city. I wonder if Christianity would have the same place in the world today if Carthage had won. Would that tiny Jewish heresy of the Christ that occurred in the eastern Mediterranean have become the world-spanning religion that it is today? Personally, I think it would at least be similar the Christians turned out to be pretty perseverant in the face of Rome, but Christianity wouldn't have been filtered through a Roman, and then later a Germanic lens. It would have been filtered through a Carthaginian lens, and I wonder what that would have looked like. 
Regardless, when Carthage did finally fall, the Berber people of North Africa continued on. They fished, they hunted, they herded, they continued having children, and continued their lives. But then, the one-time Carthaginian city, Utica, was colonized by Rome. Now, the Romans, as opposed to the Carthaginians, were an expansionist, imperialistic civilization. They took over Berber tribes and kingdoms. They brought all of them under the Roman fold. They named the shores that they had just conquered after the local name that the Libyan Berbers gave to their tribe, the Afri. They called their shores, their new colonial holdings, Africa. The Romans went on to conquer the Numidian civilization, another Berber people. They went on to conquer the whole of North Africa, from the Atlantic to all the way eventually to Egypt. Then they conquered the ancient Phoenician lands in the Levant and the lands of the Israelites. They had Greece as well, and, and then they expanded into a former Carthaginian colonial holding and called it Roman Hispania. Shortly after those Romans conquered the Levant, the local Jewish population saw two major upheavals. First, there was the birth of a messianic cult that blossomed into a sect and finally into its own distinct religion. Then the Jews fought a revolt against Rome. They lost and saw their second temple destroyed and much of the population dispersed. Now, we've recently discussed the Jews that were relocated to Hispania, but many, many more of those fled to Egypt and then on into Berber lands, most notably into Morocco. There is one island off the coast of Tunisia that may actually have a Jewish population that is significantly older, dating back to the destruction of the first temple. Genetic studies have shown a distinction between the Jews of that island, Jerba, and the Jews that fled after the destruction of the second temple. So there were communities of Jewish people in Berber lands. In fact, Berber Judaism is as ancient as the Berbers themselves. It would have been a place of safety and respite. Those Jews went on to establish other communities in Roman Africa, and those communities would go on to welcome Jewish exiles from Hispania and Rome in about 400 years. But the Romans were not a religiously oppressive people. Jews, Berber pagans, Christians, and Roman pagans all lived side by side under Roman hegemony. They built roads and aqueducts and hospitals and schools, and eventually they would go on to build monasteries. As Christianity rose to prominence within the Roman Empire, that North African monastic tradition grew into one of the most interesting in the world. The Berber people left behind their traditional religion and adopted Christianity pretty quickly, but they fell into a bizarre asceticism. There was a man named St. Simeon who was an ascetic monk that was sought out for prayers and blessings. He became so bothered by the constant pilgrimages to see him that he hid himself away in a cave, but even that cave was found and his rest was disturbed. He no longer had the opportunity to commune with God, so he had a pillar constructed and built a small platform on top of it, and then he climbed up on top of that pillar to live for 37 years. 
children would bring him milk and bread to eat, and people did come to pray at the foot of his pillar, but they never climbed up to bother him. There were Berber monks who fasted until death. Some of them lived on nothing but sunlight and water, only eating once or twice a month, and lived longer than anybody should rightfully be able to in those situations. These ascetics, in the eyes of Rome, were entertaining frivolities. The problem came, though, when the Berber people started to disavow marriage altogether. They believed that Christ was on his way, he would come back in their lifetime, and they wanted to be pure when he arrived. A generation of the Berber people almost failed. No one wanted to have children, and every woman desired to be a nun. Women left their husbands to go join the nunnery. And not just a few women. Lots and lots of women left their husbands without having children to join a nunnery. Girls gave up the idea of marriage altogether to go join the nunnery. Rome had a problem with that, namely that their colony was about to be depopulated. So they sent an army into Africa. But it wasn't an army of soldiers, it was an army of women. They built theaters and harems and brothels, and they filled them with the most beautiful women to be found in the entirety of the Roman Empire. There were red-haired Germans and yellow-haired Slavs and black-haired Celts. There were sub-Saharan Africans with dark skin and Greeks with olive complexion and beautiful blue-eyed Persian girls who knew dances that would quicken even the most pious of hearts. They had a system in place as well. The theaters would put on plays that had holy themes that would draw in the pious Berber men. But the actors, all of whom were the most beautiful women among that collection of most beautiful women, danced and flowed and played their parts with, quote, unencumbered charms, end quote. They were deeply heretical, of course. One might go to see a play of piety expecting to see the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene, but not expect to see her with unencumbered charms dancing the dances of the East. Those theaters were built next door to brothels. The men who had just been tricked into seeing such a lascivious play didn't have time to cool their blood. Sometimes they would even have doorways directly from the theater into the brothel so that no respecting citizen would have to see you go from one into the other. Now those brothels and the harems were built next door to chapels with priests inside, and the women that had been imported into this Berber civilization were encouraged to convince the men that came to visit them into marriage. Failing that, though, they were at least to bear children, now, this activity seems to have saved North Africa from a pious depopulation, but it had two effects. First, it may have played a role in why North Africa and the Berber people, and by extension Carthage, that entire region, have long been characterized as seductive and sensual people. Now, that reputation existed in earlier writings as well, probably because Carthage had a relatively free class of women, but this army of beauties probably added to that reputation. There are records of merchants and priests returning from North Africa in which they can talk about nothing but the belly dancing. 
Second, though, this army of women makes the genetic roots of the Berbers notoriously hard to pin down. There were Egyptian and Phoenician and Roman influences on the Berber people, but now there were women from Persia and Hispania and Gaul and Britannia and everywhere in the Roman Empire. In the end, the Roman Empire held North Africa and the Berber people under their political sway for 500 years, give or take a century here or there. They lived in a mutual peace and toleration for the most part. Once the Berber people had agreed to pay taxes, they were allowed the use of Roman roads and Roman aqueducts, but they were left similar to how Carthage had treated them, mostly alone, out in the wilderness, herding and fishing and trading. Abu Nassar writes in A History of the Maghreb, quote, What made the Berbers accept the Roman way of life all the more readily was that the Romans, though a colonizing people who captured their lands by might of arms, did not display any racial exclusiveness and were remarkably tolerant of Berber religious cults, be they indigenous or grafted from the Carthaginians. However, the Roman territory in Africa was unevenly penetrated by Roman culture, Pockets of non-Romanized Berbers continued to exist throughout the Roman period, even in such areas as eastern Tunisia and Numidia. End quote. Religious and racial toleration made North Africa under Roman rule a peaceful and mostly happy place. However, the observant listener might have noticed that Abu Nassar isn't a particularly Roman name. The Roman Empire in the West began to decline. The Roman legions in North Africa pulled back to defend Rome. Now, at first, this actually seemed pretty great for the Berbers. They had all of those Roman advancements, the roads and the medicine and the aqueducts, but they were able to reorganize and come in from the fields to take over the urban life of North Africa, to start up their own kingdoms. They split up the coast along their own internal tribal lines. There was conflict between them, but soon enough all of those kingdoms were on their way to being fully established. And then Rome fell. One of the Germanic tribes that had been fighting the Roman legions, the Vandals, invaded Hispania alongside the Visigoths, and then moved on to conquer North Africa and the lands of all the Berbers in about 429. Now, they were Christian Germanic peoples, but not Roman Catholic. They were Arianist heretics. Arianism, well, first of all, its name shares an unfortunate similarity with the idea of an Arian race, but that's based in 19th century ideas and takes its name from ancient Sanskrit. Arianism was actually born from an Alexandrian Berber, a bishop named Arius. Arius is... An interesting character, and actually the Arian heresy is the central question of the Council of Nicaea. The distinction there is the nature of Jesus Christ. Catholics believed in the divine nature of Jesus, while Arianists believed that Jesus was a mortal, just the Son of God, and therefore a separate entity. The Berbers even after a very long occupation by the Roman Empire, were those that were Christian, mostly Arian.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The Berbers initially resisted the Vandal invasion, but once they realized that they had some common religious grounds, some of them actually allied against the urban, Romanized Catholic population of North Africa. And once the Visigothic invasion was complete, a large number of Sephardi Jews from Hispania migrated south into North Africa. The Visigoths were Catholic and brutal, while the Vandals and the Berbers were much more welcoming. The Sephardi Iberian Jews assimilated immediately into the many Jewish Berber communities that had been established way back in the first century. Those communities would go on to spread into other communities across North Africa, and they would welcome hundreds of thousands of Jewish exiles in, well, in about a thousand years. Now, even after the fall of the city of Rome and the collapse of the Roman Empire in Europe, the Roman Empire still existed. Sometimes we call them the Byzantine Empire, after their capital city, Byzantium. But when Rome fell, their capital was no longer called Byzantium. It was called Constantinople, after Constantine the Great. And shortly after the Vandal invasion of North Africa, Constantinople had a new The Great in Charge, Justinian the Great. He reclaimed much of the Roman Empire from Italy and Cisalpine Gaul all the way to southern Hispania and down into Africa. But that all ended with the death of Justinian. At the end of his reign as emperor, what many consider to be the last true emperor of the Roman Empire, a young man was born in Mecca named Muhammad ibn Abdullah. He preached in his lifetime a new prophetic message from God in the tradition of Abraham, of Moses, and Jesus. Politically and religiously, his primary aim was to convert all of the pagan people of Arabia into his faith. That was paramount to his teachings. As far as the Jews and Christians in Arabia were concerned, he considered them brothers in the Abrahamic faiths. He encouraged the spreading of the word of Islam, but he discouraged evangelizing. 
Christians and Jews were to be welcomed, honored guests. They were to be treated as though they were all family under the same God. This was a radical teaching of toleration, similar in many respects to the teachings of Jesus Christ at the dawn of the first century. But European Christianity turned away from many of those early Christian teachings in a search for power. The toleration that Jesus preached would not last, and the toleration that Mohammed preached wouldn't last either, partly because the Byzantine Roman Empire, well, they didn't share those views of religious toleration, especially not when it was for a new religious leader and his descendants that were busy gaining influence and power on the border of their own empire. They saw dangerous things happening over there. I mean, sure, unite the people of Arabia, that's fine, but stay in your lane. And they didn't stay in their lane. After the death of Mohammed, one line of his descendants started a caliphate, and they started annexing lands. They captured much of Persia, modern-day Iraq, and then they moved on into Syria, which at the time belonged to the Eastern Roman Empire. In 638 CE, they took the city of Jerusalem. Now, that first caliphate moved on to take over other Byzantine holdings. They went into Egypt, and then they moved west into Berber territory. Now, that's a lot of land to digest in only a few short decades. Persia, Syria, Egypt, Arabia. It was, in a lot of ways, not unlike the early Mongol conquests, or even the early Roman conquests. And much like the Mongols and the Romans, after those initial victories, powerful men within their empire realized they had differences on how things should be run, and more importantly, who should be running it. There were differing ideologies within that Muslim caliphate. Now, the primary ideological difference within Islam is a differing of opinion on who the prophet named as his rightful successor. There are some other religious practices, but that distinction laid the groundwork for the sectarian divide in Islam between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Those differences, those ideological differences, those differences of idea, turned into violence and then into a civil war. Now, the ramifications of that civil war have led to a sectarian divide that the world has still, to this day, not figured out how exactly to deal with. But for our purposes, we're going to look at those who came out on top in that initial conflict, the Sunni side of the ideological divide, and what they established, the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, the Umayyad Caliphate rose quickly to become one of the largest and most powerful empires of all time. They're up there with Rome and the Mongols. Now, the Umayyad Caliphate completed the conquest of North Africa. They had Egypt and everything else along the coast. They gave an Arabic name. They called it the Maghreb. Now, the Maghreb is our focus today. It incorporated parts, it still incorporates today, parts of modern-day Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, and Mauritania. However, the Umayyad conquest was a military conquest, much like the Vandal and Roman conquests, but in many ways more violent. The Umayyad had fewer allies than the Carthaginians or the Romans or the Vandals, and they faced more resistance. My favorite of those stories of rebellion is the story of Queen Dihya. 
Her story is among the many great tales of rebellions, of wars of defense or independence that were led by women. And there's something there. There's something I don't quite have a proper grasp of. The Greek god of liberty and freedom was a goddess, Libertas. Lady Liberty and the Statue of Liberty both carry the torch of liberty, a symbol rooted in Greece. The French painting commemorating the July Revolution is Liberty leading the people, and Liberty is personified by a woman with one of her breasts exposed so that you can't miss she's a woman, and she's carrying the tricolor in one hand and a musket in the other. Now, all of that is art. French painting, Greek sculptures, the Statue of Liberty, that's art, and it's all in a classical style, so it makes sense to return to a Grecian inspiration for that. But the Greeks were really on to something with their goddess, Libertas, because, well, the real world has so many examples of women leading revolutions. Now, there may be another layer of symbolism here. A woman heading a rebellion or a revolution is a symbol of what is at stake, of what the invading, conquering force is there to take and what the defenders are there to fight for. It may be a not-too-subtle message telling the freedom fighters, whomever they may be, that if we are to lose this, our wives and our daughters and our sisters will, against their will, become the wives of the invaders. For example, Joan of Arc was not a military leader. She was a potentially schizophrenic teenager that had prophetic visions. But the French Dauphin and the military commanders of the time utilized her charisma and her beauty to inspire the troops that were fighting a losing war. However, there are many, many real-world women who led the charge. There's Boudicca's Rebellion in Britannia, there's Grace O'Malley in Ireland, there's Queen Tomiri who killed Cyrus the Great. And then even into the 20th century, we see the Russian Revolution sparked off by a women's march protesting for bread. Some of the most famous and celebrated freedom fighters against the Nazi regime in France, well, they were young women, some of them no older than Joan of Arc. And Dihya, on the Berber coast, was an indigenous Jewish Berber queen. She led her people in the defense of the Berber coast. Now, most of what we know of her comes from either legend or from Arabian chroniclers. They claim she was a Jewish priestess, a sorceress, and a soothsayer. Now, I don't want to hammer home the similarities between Roman accounts of Queen Dido of Carthage and the Umayyad accounts of Dihya, but both women did straddle that line, according to their enemies, between a witch and a goddess. No, I'm sure that has nothing to do with two distinctly masculine patriarchal civilizations invading societies in which women can hold positions of power and influence and then destroying those civilizations so that they can write the history. But Queen Dihya was a princess of a tribe in modern-day Algeria. They had converted almost to a person to Judaism, probably from their indigenous religion. Her father was killed in battle with the Muslim invaders, and Dihya picked up the Torch of Liberty and led her people there to victory on the battlefield. That was a victory so sound that the entire Umayyad army fled back into Libya. Dihya reigned in peace over not only her tribe, but the allied tribes, for five years. Now, there is an argument and some evidence that some of her policies turned the urban Roman Christians against her. 
and that led them to aid the Umayyad Caliphate against the Berbers. But all of that needs to be taken lightly. There may be truth in it, but everything that we know of her was written by the victors, by the Umayyad Caliphate. For example, according to Muslim writers that were actually there, when the Umayyad armies eventually returned in strength, Queen Dihya went to battle. She fought bravely and valiantly, but when defeat was imminent, she was given a vision from Allah and underwent a battlefield conversion. And then she was killed, accidentally. Now that's a handy story when you want the people who believed in her, the people who followed her, to convert to your religion. Rather than see her as a martyr, that turns her into a torchbearer. Those Muslim writers also claimed that her sons converted on the battlefield and led the now-combined Berber and Umayyad army to victory across the rest of North Africa, and even one of them up into Spain. Now, that probably didn't happen. However, one way or another, within a few years, the Umayyad Caliphate controlled all of what had once been ancient Egypt, the Phoenician world, including Carthage, and the Roman African diocese, and most of Hispania. The Umayyad Caliphate ascended to power quickly. We're talking within a lifetime or two. But they ruled precipitously. Their first move in North Africa was a good one. The Christian and Jewish Berber people of the Maghreb were encouraged to convert, but allowed to keep to their traditions. And they were even allowed to stand trial according to their own religious laws. Now that all seems pretty good. But the fatal mistake of the Umayyad Caliphate appears to have been a lack of religious and racial toleration within Islam. They relied too much on central rule from Damascus, and they demanded that every Muslim under their banner bend to their direct will. So another civil war took place within Islam. The Umayyad Caliphate was overthrown. Their primary successors were the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, they too were Sunni, but they were racially distinct from the Umayyad. They moved the capital to Baghdad, and initially they claimed all of the former Umayyad lands, including the Maghreb, but they were forced to cede several of them to former Umayyad emirs, who turned into other smaller caliphates. First of all, there was the Emirate of Cordoba in Spain, which became the Caliphate of Cordoba, an autonomous nation. Then the Idrisid dynasty took power in Morocco. That founded, essentially, what is modern-day Morocco. They were raised into power by the Berber population there. They wanted nothing to do with the politics and problems in the Middle East. Then the Fatimid Caliphate took over the rest of northern Africa. They had the entirety of the Maghreb and Egypt. Now, there are more, but... We're sitting at about 800 or 900 CE here and deep into medieval Muslim history, and most of that isn't particularly relevant. There were internal troubles, dynastic struggles, and a lot of crusades involved. Europe was almost constantly at war with the Turk, but I want to fast forward about 500 years. The caliphates in the Berber lands of the Maghreb stayed more or less stable throughout that time. But by 1400 or so, the newest Islamic empire, the Ottoman Empire, had taken command of the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates. Everything except for Morocco, which was 
much larger than modern-day Morocco, a sliver of the Fatimid dynasty, and Muslim Spain were now under Ottoman rule. The Ottomans pushed the Byzantine Empire back, until, in 1453, Constantinople finally fell to the Ottoman Turks. The emperor that took over the city, named Mehmed the Conqueror, was Caliph of his Ottoman Empire, but he also took up the title of Caesar, of the Romans. He called himself Emperor of all the Romans. Through this claim, which he and his descendants took very seriously, there is an argument to be made that if the Emperor were the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire lasted until 1922. Now, most reputable historians would discount that entirely. The sultan of the Ottoman Empire was no more an emperor of Rome than the Holy Roman Emperor was an emperor of Rome. However, there were at least three men that claimed the title of Caesar during World War I, the Kaiser, the Tsar, and the Sultan. But most would agree that the Roman imperial tradition fell in 1453 with Constantinople. Now, Mehmed the Conqueror claimed that by right of conquest of Constantinople, he was now Caesar, and he had a right to all that the Byzantine Empire had ever held, including everything under Emperor Justinian. That means Greece, Eastern Europe, Italy, Cisalpine Gaul, Sicily, Cordoba, Egypt, and the Maghreb, plus Persia, Arabia, Syria, and all that came with being Caliph. Basically, he was Caliph and Caesar all in one, and there was little doubt in Europe that he intended to stop there. If he were Caesar of the Roman Empire, shouldn't he possess France, Spain, and Britain as well? Now, there is a distinction to be made here. It's an inaccurate distinction filled with Western bias, and it doesn't even get close to including all of the details that should be included, but it will help us to better understand the situation. In European minds, the Muslim world was divided between two political and racial bodies. There was the Turk, which could refer to any Muslim person or nation, but more specifically, it meant those in the Ottoman Empire or the former Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates. And then there were the Moors. Now, the Moors, well, didn't exist. Not really. There were no Moorish people. There was no Moorish state. There was Morocco, but when a European would say a Moor, they meant any Muslim Berber inhabitant of Spain or North Africa. This could also often include the Jewish inhabitants of Spain and North Africa. Now, there are, of course, dozens, perhaps hundreds of sectarian, racial, and cultural distinctions within the Islamic world, but in the minds of the Europeans, this was the big one. About 50 years after the fall of Constantinople, the Moors were finally, conclusively, pushed out of Spain. That was 1492. They continued on in Morocco as leaders, but the rest of the Maghreb Berbers were falling under the sway of the Ottoman Empire and their sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent. Next time, we're going to focus on that period. The fall of the last vestiges of Islamic Spain, the spread of Muslims and Jews into the Mediterranean, and the power struggles between Suleiman the Magnificent and Charles V. We're going to focus in on that through the eyes of two brothers who were arguably the first Barbary pirates. 
I was asking myself before recording today's episode why I wanted to talk about what we talked about today. Partly it's my addiction to context. Partly I think it was to cleanse my palate. We're moving on to a different geographical and cultural place and I wanted to get into that headspace. But I think it is important because we are moving to a very distinct place from everything we have discussed so far on this show to have a real grasp and background of who the people that we're going to be talking about are. The Berbers, the people of the Barbary Coast, the bulk of the Barbary Pirates, are a complex people and very distinct in many ways from most of the pirates we've talked about. And I want everyone moving forward to understand who they are historically, and perhaps that will give some context as to why they did what they did. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank especially everyone who has helped to support the show. Everyone who has given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has left a donation at the website. And everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I absolutely suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight